Trog talked about two ways to understand love. So first, you have culture's mistaken definition of love. Call it a love is God approach, right? Our sinful hearts twist love to mean whatever it is that we want it to mean. We use it to, to self-actualize and self-define and to guard ourselves from any moral judgment. We use it to affirm ourselves, build ourselves up, etc. But there is a second way, right? The biblical way. You can call that the God is love approach, obviously taken from 1 John. Uh, this, in this approach, a biblical understanding begins with God. Any definition of love apart from God fails to actually be love itself. He's the one who has displayed love for us, as Trog talked about last week, in and through his son, in the cross of Jesus Christ, and he is the one whose love is displayed in the local church, which we'll talk about more as we go along as well. But what we want to begin with this morning is God's love for himself. So the source of the love of God that we experience and that we are called to mimic with each other in the life of the local church actually begins with God's own love and own affection for himself. Uh, The kind of holy love that God shows is the same kind of a love he's had internally, eternally, right? So when we think about God's love, sometimes, uh, mistakenly, we kind of make God's love man-centered by assuming that the first thing, first people he's ever loved was us, right? That he became loving whenever he created us and decided to save us. But the Bible says, no, God is love, right? Not that God became love, not that God is now love, but that he is love. And that's just who he is as God, right? It's not something that he puts on as much as it's part of his identity as the divine being. And God has always had someone to love, right? Even before he created anything, because he was always, more than anything or anyone, loving himself, because he's the best thing to possibly love, right? And since God has always been satisfied in himself, he doesn't need anything outside of himself to complete him. So maybe if you've ever heard someone share the gospel this way, that in the beginning, God was lonely and he created human beings for a relationship with him. There's truth in that, although there's more error in it, because God didn't need to create to fulfill something in himself because his love is already perfected in himself, which, if you think about it, actually makes his love free. He doesn't need to use love to, uh, to, to build himself up, to, to fulfill some unmet need, because when we love like that, when we love out of a, a desire to, to self-actualize as a as a way to be full and fulfilled, then we actually use our love to manipulate and to turn other people into idols, right? But God doesn't have needs because he's God, and he doesn't have needs because he's always had fellowship within himself because God is triune, meaning the one God exists eternally in Father, Son, and Spirit, right? He has always been Father, Son, and Spirit. That's just what it means to be God. One God, three persons, Blessed Trinity. And between these three persons is perfect delight, perfect love. And it's always been that way. Pure love for eternity. The Father loves the Son and the Spirit. The Son loves the Father and the Spirit. And the Spirit loves the Father and the Son. All three of these persons are obviously equally God and share in the the wonderful happiness of everything that it means to be God. To be perfectly holy. To be the most wonderful being. To be the most beautiful one who has uh, ever been. So that's where God's love begins, in the fellowship of the Trinity. 
God loving God, because again, he is the best one to love. He is perfectly holy. He's perfectly just. He is the one who is beautiful. And he gazes upon himself and finds delight in himself, because if he didn't, then he would be finding his love. He would be finding a satisfaction in something lesser, right? Because God is best. So God never had to become loving, which is important, because as we start to think about how we should love one another, and we want to base that love in who God is, we have to start with this God who is self-sufficient, who has everything that he needs and then moves towards us in love, but only after moving inwardly, right, um, between the persons of the Trinity in love. If God has always been perfect, and he's always shown this holy love for all eternity for himself, then shouldn't we believe his definition of love over our own? Right, if he's always been this way eternally, meaning he never started being this way and he never stopped being this way, he just is this way, then he's probably a more reliable guide for our definition of love than we are ourselves. Right? Whenever we turn away from God and sin against him, we like to act like we can define reality, whereas the reality is God is love himself. He's not just somebody that's super good at love, he is love. And so why would we not throw ourselves on his definition and his understanding of love. And when we do so, we find true happiness, true life, true satisfaction as we grow in conformity to his image. God is a, a trustworthy source of love because he is always going to lead us to it, that which is most, uh, most holy, the best. He is going to do always for us what we need most. Now, we have to let God define what it is that we need most, namely him, right? We need salvation from our sins, and we need the Holy Spirit to transform our hearts so that we can be who it is that we are created to be. But since God is holy, his love always leads to him, always leads to greater holiness, which, if we believe what the Bible says, leads to more joy and more happiness. God's love starts in himself and then moves out towards his people and salvation and then circles back to him. Or, as Paul says in Romans eleven thirty six. All things are from him, through him, and to him. So that everything in the world is culminating in God being seen and being savored for how glorious he really is. Because that is the point of everything. Uh, and that's the point of God himself. Um, so that's God's eternal love. Uh, the eternal love that he has for himself within the, within the Trinity. Um, the next thing I want us to think about is where we see that love displayed in the incarnation. So uh, the incarnation just being a theological term for when God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, came and took on a human nature like ours, so that he didn't stop being God, but he did start being man in that one person of Jesus Christ uh, in order to become like us in every way except without sin, right? So that he could be our perfect high priest. It's what the whole book of Hebrews is about, essentially. Um, And whenever God sends the Son, when the Father sends the Son by the Spirit, we are actually getting an inside look at the, at the internal life of God from all eternity, right? We know that God is Trinity because the Father sent the Son and the Spirit, and we get to uh, peer in behind the scenes, as it were, because when God moves towards us in salvation, he's not coming more, he's not coming first and foremost to give us something, even like salvation or, or whatever, even really good stuff. He is coming to reveal himself. God in his internal 
eternal love for himself wants that to spread, not so that we can get something else, but so that we can get him. He wants us to see and delight in the same thing that he's seen and delighted in from eternity, namely himself. And as we start to think about God the Father's love for Christ the Son, we have to remember from the front that the love between Father and the incarnate Christ, Jesus the Son, is unique, right? Because even as Jesus uh, comes into the world, right, uh, and takes on a human nature, he doesn't cease to be divine, right? Those, those two natures are always active in one person, always. And that means that the, the union between Father, the Father and the Son, and Jesus and God the Father, uh, is unique because they share the same divine essence. They share the same divine nature. They actually share one divine will. Um, so while our love for one another obviously can mimic and can image the kind of union between the persons of the Godhead uh, as we are imaging creatures, we're made in God's image, it's not going to be a one-to-one comparison, right? So we want to we think analogically, as some theologians talk about, which is by way of analogy. It's like this. It's as this. But it's not a complete one-to-one because God's God and we're not. That's a good theological axiom for you. If you're ever confused, just be like, oh, yeah, God's God and I'm not. That helps explain a whole lot of our problems. But as Jonathan Lehman says in his book, quote, the Son put on flesh and perfected the flesh so that we might learn about perfect love and imitate it. So while it's not a one-to-one, it is meant to reveal the love that God has for himself within the persons, between the Father and the Son. And then it's also creating in us, ultimately, the ability to love in this way, and then gives us the example of how to. Uh, It helps us understand divine love and the love that we should have for one another. So there are five things, I think, let me check. Nope, there are four things that uh, I want us to see uh, about love from this relationship between the Father and the incarnate Christ. And I'm going to keep going back to that. It's, It's Jesus on his earthly ministry in his humanity that we're going to be talking about a lot of these things, which will be important uh, just in a sec. But first we see that God's love involves affection, affection, right? The father doesn't just put up with the son. No, he says he delights in him. He says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The person of the father delights in the person of the son. Divine love is an affectional love, right? God is not only just notionally understanding that he himself is the best person to be delighted in, the best person to love, but he experiences the, the kind of affection for himself that, that should accompany the true love, right? We, we find our delight. No one excites us more than this object, right? It should be God for us, and it's God uh, for God as well because he's perfect. Now, second, we see the giving nature of love. So we see that love involves affection. Second, we see that love involves giving. As, as we peek in on the love between God the Father and Jesus, we see that because of their shared identity and being, that they are perfectly united so much so that Jesus can say in John 14, 11, I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. And of course, like we said earlier, this differs between how two non-divine people can love one another, but we can draw this principle, that true love involves giving oneself to another. True love involves giving oneself to another, not giving of oneself to another. The distinction is subtle, but it's important. 
It's not, it's easy to give of ourselves to people, right? We can kind of stand a little bit distant and say, I'll give you some of my time. I'll give you some of my money. I'll give you some of this, right? But instead, we see the example uh, here between father and son being one of, of self-giving. I give you me, right? And again, it's going to be different by how we can do that for each other. Uh, but again, it's a principle that we can take away. Now, third, love exalts. So love exalts the other. The father shares his divine glory with the son and the spirit, The Father exalts the incarnate Christ uh, after his resurrection. He says, uh, and Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, God has put all things in subjection under his feet. The Father displays his love for the Son by putting the Son's glory on display for all to see. So there's no rivalry between the persons, right, of the Trinity because they're all God. They want God to be magnified and they're inseparable in how they operate. They have one mission. So for us we'll see that biblical divine love among us seeks to promote others and to see the glory of God displayed through them uh, as we prefer others more than ourselves because it's easy to love God's glory displayed whenever it's being displayed through us, right? But we want to fall in love with seeing God's glory wherever we find it and promote it in other people. Like this uh, brother, this sister is really, really uh, zealous in evangelism. This brother or this sister led that Bible study in a way that was super edifying. It doesn't have to be us that leads the Bible study. It has to be us that has the great uh, prayer on Sunday morning, if that makes sense. Uh, fourth, and finally, we see in the relationship between the Father and Jesus the Son, no separation between love and obedience. So one thing that the culture gets love, one thing about love the culture gets wrong, is that the We like to define love apart from any kind of moral judgments, any kind of boundaries drawn, right? But we don't see that as we see Jesus, the Son incarnate, obeying his heavenly Father. He says, it is my food and my drink to do the will of the Father. Uh, Whereas we tend to think that true love has no ethical or moral expectations, the Father delights in the obedience of the Son. You could even say that the Father loves the Son because of his obedience, It was Jesus' perfect righteousness that drew the Father's favor. And it's his perfect righteousness, by the way, which draws God's favor for us as well as his righteousness becomes ours by faith. Uh, In fact, the way that Jesus expressed his love to God, the Father, was by doing the Father's will. So his love for God led him to obedience towards God because he wanted to, uh, to do the Father's will. Now, we can't move on from that one until we qualify it just a bit. Uh, God the Father has always loved the Son eternally, right, as God, because they are both God, not because the Son was obedient to the Father. Jesus was only ever able to be obedient to the Father in and through his human nature, whenever he was on earth, right, because two persons of the Godhead can't submit to each other. Uh, If that's confusing at all, um, you can go and listen to an ABF that I myself and Chris Sutterfield did on systematic theology where we explore the person of Christ. And I think that will be, uh, that'll be really helpful to clear up some of those things. Uh, there was even, uh, <laughs> Stephen kind of made us do it again, where uh, one, we did the human nature of Christ and the divine nature of Christ. And then he said, hey, combine it all into one, one good time. Uh, and so we did that as well. So you can go on the website for that. I should have put it on the handout, but you know, that's how it goes. Um, 
So the Son, as God, cannot and would not submit to the Father. Uh, but we're talking here again about Jesus in his human nature, in the flesh. Uh, but we do learn from the love between the Father and the incarnate Son that love and rules are not mutually exclusive, right? In fact, we're going to see that true love involves rules. It draws lines and not to cut off flourishing, not to hinder us or shackle us, but actually to free us up uh, to live the most truly human life, the fullest life, where we flourish the most spiritually, where we find the most joy. Now, before we move on to sort of the back half of this little speech, any questions that you have? Any questions at all? All right. Good deal. That could either be one or two things. Super clear or so unclear that you don't even want to take a stab. I'll assume it's the former this morning. All right. Let's move on. Let's think now about the win-win of God's love. So we established God loves himself more than anything else because he's the best. And what else would we want him to find his satisfaction in? And he shows that love for the Son uh, within the Trinity and then also as the Son is sent into the world to take on flesh in the incarnation. So now let's think about how God's love for himself actually is a win-win. It's a win-win. More than a few people have been turned off from Christianity from this fact that God, more than anything else, loves and exalts God. Right? They think, wow, okay. Uh, if I did that, everybody would think I was the worst. No one would hang out with me. And that's true because you would be the worst, right? That's what we do naturally. We do place ourselves smack dab in the middle of the universe. But the reason that that's okay for God and not us is, again, we're not God. But you have uh, Brad Pitt. Is Brad Pitt still like famous as an actor? He's still, okay. I just didn't know if it was like, who's Brad? All right. Um, he says this. I didn't understand this idea of a God who says, you have to acknowledge me. You have to say that I'm the best, and then I'll give you eternal happiness. If you won't, then you don't get it. It seemed about ego. I can't see God operating from ego, so it made no sense to me, says Brad Pitt. It was either Brad Pitt or Oprah. I figured Brad Pitt would be a better, uh, better example. But uh, I imagine that, that that might resonate with some of us, right? The first time that we, we hear that God, more than anything else, loves himself. Um, and, and it makes sense uh, to our, our fallen hearts but here are three problems with thinking like that. Three problems with, with thinking that wouldn't God be egotistical uh, if he loved himself more than anything else? If his glory is what satisfied him most? The short answer is no. Uh, but first, we have to keep in mind, again, we are not God. It would be immoral and hideous. In fact, it is what sin is at its root to ask others to treat ourselves as if we were this, the center of the universe, as we were the ones who deserved love above all else. But for God to love himself is to be holy and good, right? That is the definition of God's goodness, essentially, that he upholds his own glory and his own value more than anything else in the world, because that is what is best. Uh, in fact, were God to love anything else more than himself, he would be guilty of idolatry, right? That's what we call whenever we bow down to anything more than God, in place of God, whenever we love something more than we love Jesus, we call that an idol. And would God not be similar if he looked outside of himself to something lesser, to something that's not God for his love and his satisfaction? Again, uh, 
were we to have a God like that, he would be loving out of a, out of a broken cistern, essentially, right? He would be running to a broken cistern uh, instead of being a fountain of living water for us. Second, as we said earlier, the problem with Brad Pitt's thinking, with our thinking, if we object to God loving himself more than anything else, is that God is triune, right? He's one in essence, three in persons. And that means for God to love himself is to love others in that sense, right? It, it, for him to love himself is to have fellowship and perfect delight between Father, Son, and Spirit. So that while it is unity in the one essence, it's diversity in the three persons, such that God's inward love pushes out between the, the three persons of the Godhead. And then third, God's love for himself is a win-win situation. In other words, it's good for us that God loves himself most. Whenever we love ourselves most and we love our glory most, our universe shrinks. We start using everyone and everything uh, to try to prop ourselves up, and eventually everything gets crushed and we're just left with us. Our relationships get ruined, so on and so forth. Our hearts grow cold, but when God exalts himself, everyone who belongs to him wins. Everyone who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ gets the W, right? That's because God creates and he grows with his love, right? It causes us to flourish. It's like how uh, sun causes plants to grow through the photosynthesis, and that's all the biology I'm going to do today, if that's even biology. I'm dating myself. I'm a, the- I'm a theology major guy. Um, God's love, uh, he loves us best when he makes much of himself because that's what we need most. God gives us God because God is what we need. To see and to savor the glory of God is to truly live. To have our hearts satisfied in him is what we need. And it's how we are restored to who we are created to be, right? We are created to image God, to reflect him, to worship him, to adore him, to walk in fellowship with him. And God loves us by turning us from our sin, giving us new hearts so that we can do that, so we can do what we were created for. Um, If self-centered human love is like a black hole that sucks the life out of everything around us, God's perfect self-centered love is like an ever-expanding universe, right? Our minds and our hearts are open to this whole universe of of joy and of uh, happiness, and God's inward love, again, has this outward push, uh, and, and there's something inherently others-centered about God's self-centered, beautiful, divine love. God wants us to taste and see that he's good. He knows that, and he gives that to us as a gift so that we can know that as well. What starts within the persons of the Godhead bursts out and overflows towards us in creation, and more importantly, in salvation, which I think that uh, Trey or somebody is going to talk about next week. He frees us from the lifeless, soul-sucking disposition of loving ourselves and loving our sin and opens us up to enjoy vital, joy-producing love that only comes when we know that God is better than anything else. Now, since all that is true, our love, our love for God is to be God-centered and our love for each other is to be God-centered. We love each other best whenever we our love for one another finds its source in the eternal love of God, right? We love each other best when we love God most and when we love one another for God's sake. 
the kind of love that causes all of us to grow and to flourish and to, to be spiritually conformed to the image of Christ is this kind of love uh, that is shared between the persons of the Trinity and revealed in the sending of the Son. Namely, it's centered on God. And to love like God does, we need help. We need the Holy Spirit, right? We need God inside of us to make us more like him. We need to be changed from being dead to sin to being alive, to having hearts of stone, to having hearts of flesh that are able to respond in this kind of love because naturally, as we are born into this world, we are conceived in sin uh, and we love our sin. We love ourselves and our glory too much, right? In the garden, essentially, Adam and Eve chose themselves over God. They decided that they were the ones worthy of praise, worthy of honor. They were the ones who got to call the shots and not God, right? And that led to their condemnation and it leads to all of our condemnation naturally, right? We deserve God's wrath because we've turned away from him and we've loved ourselves more than him. But God loved us before we were able to love him, right? He sent his son into the world to live the life that we failed to live and to die for the sins of anyone who would repent of their sins and trust in Jesus alone for uh, their salvation. Jesus satisfied all of the wrath of God that we deserved, right? We deserved God's wrath because we said, God, you're not worthy of all love. You're not worthy of our affection. I am. And that's an affront to the whole reason the universe was created. And that draws God's wrath. And yet Jesus took every bit of God's wrath if we turned from our sins and throw ourselves on Jesus as our substitute. And Jesus rose from the dead, proving that he defeated sin and death, that love ultimately does win, and now gives the gift of the Spirit to everyone that's united to him. So we get the Holy Spirit as a part of the new covenant that Jesus won in his blood. Shout out to the next series. We're going to be talking about covenants. Come on, I'm coming back to teach about the new covenant. Um, and we get that when we're united to Jesus. Jesus earns the Holy Spirit through his perfect life, through his sacrificial death, through his powerful resurrection, and he gives that to us. He gives us the gift of God himself. And now, when we are born again, when we're indwelt by the Spirit of God, we can love God like God loves. He enables us to open up to this infinite universe of divine beauty and close ourselves off to the black hole of sin and death. Loving God and loving others with respect to God leads to life, it leads to flourishing, it leads to, to joy. The culture teaches us that, that rules and obedience shackle us like prison chains, but that is not true. That is not true. Loving and obeying God, pouring our lives out in service to him and to his people, is the pathway to true happiness. That is where joy is found. That is where we will actually grow. That's where we'll actually flourish. And when I say a lot of times, I, I think the risk in this is that this culture, this culture, this culture, there's not a single culture that's ever existed in the world where this made sense, okay? So it's not just like your professors at the U of A, your humanities professors that, or your biology professors uh, that may teach evolution. Or so. It's not like this is a unique culture that, is, uh, that doesn't love God, right? Okay, just wanted to make that clear, that uh, it's, uh, there's no bygone era where everyone was like, yeah, this makes perfect sense, this is great. Let's all rejoice in the Lord together, um, just lest we, uh, lest we get all culture worry on, uh, on each other. Let's not do that. Um, next, let's think about love and holiness. So love and holiness. Now, holiness 
is a word that brings up the worst kind of stereotypes. We think holiness, we think rigidity, we think rules. You might think Puritan. Maybe, hopefully you don't because those guys were pretty legit, mostly. Um, you know, we think of people being holier than thou. Or we think of groups in church history whose holiness led them to be socially isolated or just to be in jerks. But holiness, again, is wonderful. It's life-giving. Uh, because God is holy, right? We want to be like God, and God is holy, so we need to be holy as well. And holiness isn't so much an attribute of God as it is who God is. It's, it's part of his essence. It's what makes him God. He is holy. Again, he is love. He is holy. In fact, in Isaiah 6.3, the angels flying around say that he is holy, holy, holy. In Hebrew, if you want to emphasize something, you say it twice in a row, right? If you say uh, yeah, it just a verb two times. It's like super that, very much that. And he says this three times, holy, holy, holy. It's the, it's the highest uh, praise that you can give. It's the most emphasis you can put on something, that God is other. He is perfect. He is wonderful, beautiful, majestic, above all else. And God's holiness is twofold. There are two aspects of it. There is that idea that God is separated, right? That God, one, is God. He is uncreated. He is eternal. But that he's also morally perfect. He's completely just. He's completely righteous. But then on the flip side, he's not just separated from sin, but he's also consecrated to his own glory so that he is completely devoted to upholding and maintaining his own glory. Because again, that is uh, the most wonderful thing, the most just thing in the universe for him to do because the universe was created by and for God. Uh, and in this, we find that God is full of life. So he not only is committed to his own glory, he enjoys it. He uh, isn't stale and stagnant, but he is abundant in life. First Timothy 1.11 calls him the blessed God, the gospel of the blessed God, um, which incidentally was the verse uh, that converted Jonathan Edwards, we think, he said. Um, but it means this, that God is eternally happy, right? To be God is not a drag for God. He loves being God. He is God. And he wants to share himself with us. Now, since God is holy and loving all the time, we can't divorce love from holiness. So apart from uh, truth, there is no love. Uh, and love uh, apart from, and truth apart from love is terrible. Uh, it's devoid of compassion and genuine concern. It's not genuine holiness. And we don't have to, and we can never choose between the two, because God is both. Or to use another phrase, God is simple. Not meaning, hey, he's really easy to understand. You just go to seminary and you're cool. Uh, you kind of come on the, the other end and you're a master of divinity and uh, you know all the secrets. But he's simple, meaning he's not composed of parts. He's not like a pie chart where you have a slice here. You got holiness, justice, and they all kind of come together to make uh, the, one, the one pie that is God. Uh, he doesn't put on his love hat whenever he wants to show us love and then, you know, take it off when he needs to get down to business and he puts on his holiness hat. Uh, he, in that sense, is all, wears all the hats. He is all the hats all the time. Uh, and we, as those made in his image, image him in this way that we don't have to choose between the two either. Now, we can't be perfectly holy and perfectly loving at the same time, right? We need to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to, to grow in holiness and grow in love. Uh, but we do want to, to love one another in a holy way and be holy in a way that's infused with love. We don't have to separate or balance them. We want them to be 
uh, informing one another all the time. So to, to sum up, God's love is always holy in both what it gives himself and why it gives uh, to, to cause us to experience salvation, to cause us to grow in the likeness of Christ and to ultimately bring himself glory. He loves as an outward push of his internal love shared between the three persons of the Trinity, like we talked about, Father, Son, and Spirit. And this holy love draws boundaries. It affirms this and not that. It pushes towards purity and away from sin. And that's the kind of love that we should show to one another, a God-centered love that is holy as well. It's a love that calls sin, sin, and it's the love that invites sinners like you and me to repent of our sins and trust in Christ towards joy in the source of everything that's good. That's God's love for himself, God's love for God that extends to us and then goes back to him in praise. Now, let's finish by thinking about uh, some implications for the local church, right? Where we see God's love show up is the local church, the gathered people of God. Uh, The local church was instituted by God to be the display of his wisdom and his glory. Like it says in Ephesians 3, the world, Jesus says, will know we belong to him and that we are his disciples by the love we show to one another. The local church really is the, the institution, the body that defines God's love for the world to see. The church is the institution God wants people to be able to look at and know the character of his love, to, to see this holy love on display. And so the question becomes, how does the church display this holy love? How does it display the love of God? By imitating God's love in our relationships with one another and in our neighbors. So let's go back uh, and use this image that Jonathan uses in the book of God's love being like a boomerang. Has anybody ever thrown a boomerang? Anybody from uh, Garland County or Hot Spring County? That's what I'm talking about. Mid-America, you've been there? Absolutely. Yes. It's a sign, I mean, it's probably only cool for like central Arkansas, but in central Arkansas, it was the most dope field trip of all time. But I remember I purchased a boomerang from there and it was like the greatest afternoon of my life until inevitably it ended up in a tree. But the boomerang of God's love never ends up in a tree. There you go. Um, but, you know, you get the general concept, you sling the thing, right, and it comes back around. Uh, so let's use that metaphor as we think about uh, how this divine love of God, this holy love, um, influences and informs how we live as a church. So first we have the throw. We sling the boomerang out. The holy love that we have impels the church, compels the church to evangelize and to do good. So the boomerang goes out into the world, but it, it doesn't become the world, but uh, it does remain distinct while calling people to this good news and calling them to repentance and faith. And, and then on the flip side, being careful to live holy lives so that we don't bring disrepute on the gospel, right? When people who have been declared to be Jesus's people act like the devil, then it actually makes Jesus look pretty terrible, right? So whenever uh, you see someone that claims to be a Christian living in a, in a thoroughly non-Christian way, then you're left thinking, well, that Jesus can't be all that great. That guy just acts exactly like I do, right, if you're a non-Christian. Um, so we want to do good while we are sharing the good news. Now, second, the boomerang is turning. Holy love impels a church to mark off members and practice church discipline. So part of how we show the holy love of God is by practicing church membership 
in church discipline. That's why if you are visiting, I know um, it's early on in the semester. If you're visiting uh, here or and you're kind of going around, find a place to land. Find a place to land ASAP. It doesn't have to be UBC. Any church that preaches the gospel and will take care of you and oversee your profession of faith, land there. Join there. Uh, it's not enough to just float around the periphery. So if you haven't, talked to Trey, talk to anybody about joining the church. Uh, I know it's a little bit of a weird time to join the church, but that's what Christians do. They show up uh, by submitting to a local church. God's holy love isn't indiscriminate. It does draw lines. There's an inside and an outside of God's love, right? There's an inside of the garden and outside of the garden. There's an inside of the promised land and an outside of the promised land. And there's an inside of the local church and an outside of the local church, right? There are members and then there is the world because we're trying to identify those who have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, those who have had their sins forgiven and belong to Jesus. Um, We show holy love in uh, baptizing people and saying, hey, this person belongs to Jesus. We're giving them the team jersey because that's what God has allowed, uh, constituted, authorized the local church to do. And we keep affirming that person as someone that belongs to Jesus, as someone who belongs on the team by giving them the Lord's Supper. That's how we proclaim to a watching world who it is that has experienced this holy love of God and who represents the holy love of God on earth. Now, the flip side of membership is church discipline, or the, the final step of church discipline, namely excommunication, removing someone from the church whenever they no longer give evidence of their profession to follow Jesus. Whenever we are like, we can't tell if you do or you don't because of how you live. We don't love anyone whenever we let them live contrary to the gospel and yet remain in church membership, right? We give them assurance, but they shouldn't have assurance because they don't have the fruit in their lives that testifies to the fact that they belong to God. True love, again, points towards God. It doesn't allow someone to deceive themselves and remain in their sin. To do so is unloving. It's unloving to that person because it deceives them. It's unloving to the church as it confuses the church and could potentially damage the church. And it confuses the nations because it confuses the character of God and ultimately leads away from the true worship of God. Right? We can inoculate people uh, to the true gospel because they think that they've already seen it and it, it's no different than what they already have. Now, third, the boomerang is coming back. Uh, Holy love impels the church, compels the church to teach and disciple. So we help one another uh, to love as God loves. We work for our brothers and sisters' spiritual well-being. Our love for God and each other drives us to study the Bible together, to internalize its teaching so that we sort of become uh, a picture of the heavenly citizenship, right? The, uh, The ethos of heaven becomes the ethos here where we love one another in holiness. We center our relationships on scripture and we stir one another up to love and good deeds as we remind each other about who God is and what he uh, has done for us in Christ. And we do that for all the members of the church, right? We take this responsibility for one another and we, wanna, uh, we want to step in and help one another follow Jesus. All right, fourth, the catch. The holy love motivates a church to worship. So it's the love of God has gone out and it's gathered people and on its way back it, it arrives at its destination, which is the praise and worship of God. So to quote Lehman again, worship is the goal of all the healthy church's activities. All the church's health uh, activities are pointed towards the worship of God, whether we're gathered or we're scattered. Since like God, we want to exalt God over everything else, 
We sing songs and pray prayers and hear sermons that magnify his glory, right? We talk about what he's done, not what we've done, how he's great, not how we're great. We practice holy love by proclaiming the word as we've received it and, and therefore declaring our agreement with its judgments that uh, the lines that scripture draws, we affirm are the lines that we are going to draw as well. And then fifth and finally, it doesn't really fit into the boomerang metaphor, which Jonathan admits, but the result uh, of the throwing of the, uh, you catch it in the result, I guess, is a culture that's created, a culture of holy love that is distinct and holy. So think of this, again, as the result of said boomerang throw. Ultimately, what we want is a church culture where God's holy love permeates every square inch of what we do. Right? There's this inward impulse to help one another grow, and then there's this outward impulse to see more people come to know this God and to experience his love. Uh, we want others to get in on this. We, we think that just like God wants us to delight in his glory because it's the best thing that he could ever give to someone else, we too want other people to find their highest joy by coming and seeing and savoring his glory, being transformed by the renewing of their minds. And in doing so, in doing all this, we reflect God's love for himself and the love that he's shown for us in Christ. Now, any questions at all? Questions? There's none. There's no questions. Totally, that's, you got it all. You want to know why I think Gordon Hayward was so important for the Celtics winning last night? You don't want to know that either? Okay. You do? He moves the ball, man. Uh, <laughs> any, really, any questions? Any questions? I think that, I, do you guys have a handout? Is that a thing? Okay, I didn't know if we were printing the handouts. My email's on the back. As soon as this is over, I'm, I'm not going to lie, I'm going to scat. My wife's a little bit higher risk for the virus, so I'm going to head out the door. However, that doesn't mean I don't want to hear from you. You can email me, um, and, uh, and I would love to answer any questions that you have. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be back in a couple of weeks, so... Um, you can also ask me uh, questions then as well when we talk about love and judgment. Are you giving me the hook, Jacob? Are you doing something? Am I supposed to pray or are you coming to discussion groups? Let me pray for us and then you can, you can discuss away. Um, God, we thank you that you love yourself more than everything else and that you invite us into that love and give us yourself and you satisfy our hearts and uh, you do so by sending your son Jesus to die for us so that we can truly live. And we pray that you would help us to love one another like this. Help us to resist the urge to love for our own uh, glory and to build up ourselves. Help us to pour into others and build them up as we all uh, together uh, build uh, this church into a uh, more and more vibrant gospel witness here in Fayetteville and abroad. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.